If you didn't find yourself wanting to stomp your feet during that song, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I clapped my hands. I took the advice. I clapped my hands and stomped my feet. I don't know if it was in rhythm, but I was doing it anyway. I read this past week, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is this. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is if you will sing the songs that you don't like. I read that this past week. And I want to tell you something. I don't know if our children like the songs or not, but, buddy, they sing them. They really sing, and it's beautiful to hear their voices. I get to sit here on Sunday mornings, and they were really singing out. And as they were leaving, uh, Dustin Moore told me on that last song, he said, that's the best church song I've ever heard. <laughs> so praise the Lord for our children. Our scripture this morning is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 56. If you found your place in your scripture, or you uh, uh, would you, uh, if you're physically able, would you stand this morning as we honor the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse number 43, the Bible says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And when, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Father, take the reading of your word and take the words that we are about to hear and anoint them with your Holy Spirit for our good and your mercy in our lives. It's all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a turning point decision in your life? I read this week as I was preparing for this sermon, I read that as adults, about every 10 years, we make a decision that will be a turning point in our life, a decision that will impact us and change uh, the course that we may be on and send us into uh, another direction. Some of these are educational some of them are career decisions, some of them are relationship decisions, some of them are family decisions. 
I can um, remember the, I did youth ministry for 13 years, and I remember so many students when they would get to that senior year of high school, and they would decide on a major that they were going to pursue when they got to university. And I would see those students uh, uh, maybe a, a year or so later and talk to them, and I'll guarantee you there were at least a half of those students who had changed their major by that time, uh, by the end of that freshman year. They had made a decision, a turning point decision that would affect their lives. And it is so wonderful to see those same kids maybe at when they're 25 or 26 years old, or maybe some of them are in their early 30s now, and to hear them say these words, I'm doing what I was born to do. And to know that and to understand that and to be able to take that to heart. That's where we are this morning in the Scriptures. Jesus here in the passage of Scriptures that we've just read had made a turning point decision. He had set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what he was born to do. Jesus knew what he, he had come to earth to do. He knew specifically and explicitly what, what he was to do, and he knew where he was to head to do it. And so we're here in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 Jesus shared the, uh, Luke shares with us the time that Jesus made that decision to turn and go to Jerusalem. This time Jesus leaves Galloway, Galilee as the main focus of his ministry and he turns southward. And this decision is going to set him squarely up on his journey to the cross. Now there were brief periods when Jesus may have returned to Galilee but this decision to leave Galilee here and, and to, as his major field of ministry will help us to understand where he's headed and he's, as he turns toward Jerusalem and the cross. Now, as we look at this a little bit further this morning, we understand that Jesus had one great mission in life. Jesus had one great mission in life. Now, we see a lot of phases, and we see a lot of different things in the life of Jesus through the Gospels that are presented to us. Number one, we see that Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was an astonishing teacher. Uh, this was not his primary mission, though. Jesus taught great crowds, and he spoke as no other man had ever spoken. How many of you remember when you were in college and you, would, uh, you were early in that freshman uh, phase, and you really didn't know how to put a schedule together, and you would mess up and take a Tuesday-Thursday class at 7.30, and it would be an hour-and-a-half lecture. I remember, <laughs> some of you are nodding remembering that. I remember one time not, not getting registered as soon as I should have, and I took a 7.30 statistics class. I don't think that I have ever been in as much torture as I was for that hour and a half listening and trying to take statistics. But I can remember those professors. I had a couple that come to mind real quickly. And I can remember going into their classes, and for one hour and a half, they just mesmerized you. They, they didn't have any notes in front of them. They, didn't have, they knew their subject matter, and they were passionate about that subject matter. And you would take that whole hour and a half, and you would listen to them, and they would go on, and they would teach. And at the end, at 7.30, well, I didn't do good at math. What's an hour and a half from 7.30? Nine? Yeah, there you go. I've embarrassed my wife. Uh, 
But at 9 o'clock, you'd look down at your watch as he was dismissing, and you'd think, wow, was that really an hour and a half? That's it. it was so good that you just, I, I would have sat for another 30 minutes. Now, can you imagine sitting listening to Jesus teach? Can you imagine listening to what's flowing from his heart and from his mouth and, and to hear that? And the very one who was there at the beginning of time, the very one whose voice is echoing throughout eternity, the very one who, who was a part of creation and who knows all and who is a part of all. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus and being taught? What a wonderful thing that would be. But remember, that was not Jesus' primary mission. Jesus was also a great mind. His, his wisdom was far greater than anyone who had ever been in the world. We talked for several Sundays about Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon, but it doesn't compare to the wisdom that Jesus had. His wisdom was greater than anyone who had ever come to the world, and he was greater than anyone who's ever come since his day. Now, Jesus took the material that existed. He took what the people were learning in the synagogues, and he took those things and he added his touch to it. He expounded on it. Now think about this. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus spoke with an authority that no one had ever heard before. He wasn't just reciting the opinions of others. Jesus would quote Moses and he would quote Elijah and he would quote Isaac. But he wasn't telling you what they said he was telling you what they really meant. And he was expounding upon it in a way that had never happened before. Now, he was also a great miracle worker. He did supernatural things to help those who were weak and needy and to also show his power. Think about the miracles of, of Jesus. We talked about one Wednesday evening as he fed the 5,000. Think about this. He healed the blind, he healed the lame, the mute, the crippled, lepers. He even raised the dead. Every, he, he did these things to help those who were weak and needy and to show his power. Every part of our Savior's life was a blessing to others and an example of how people should live. He was a great teacher. He had wisdom that no one had ever witnessed before. And he worked great miracles. However, that wasn't his mission in life. The mission of Jesus from the beginning was to die. That's simply it. From the moment of his birth through the time that he walked on this earth, the mission of Jesus from the beginning was to die. Now, listen to this statement and, and, and think about this really deeply. Jesus did not come so much to preach the gospel as he came in order that there might be a gospel to be preached. Jesus did not come so much to preach the gospel as he came in order that there might be a gospel to be preached. If Jesus had not come, if he had not uh, descended to this earth, if he had not taken on the flesh of man, there wouldn't be any reason for us to be here this morning meeting. Everything in his ministry pointed to his passion now when i'm talking about passion i'm not talking about passion in his exuberance for what he was doing i'm talking about the passion that happened from the moment that he entered in jerusalem at the triumphal entry 
And that whole week before he went to the cross at Calvary, that week of the passion, that passion is interpreted as suffering. Everything in Jesus' ministry pointed to his suffering. He even told his disciples here, while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Everything that Jesus had been a part of, everything that in his ministry was pointing to the fact that someday he would suffer and die for our sins. Now, it was necessary for Jesus to live a perfect life so that he might be the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. As he goes into that week of passion, he's going in there into the Passover week where they will take thousands of, of lambs and they will slaughter them uh, in, as a sacrifice to God for their sins but, or to, to praise God for their deliverance from Egypt. But not one, of those sin, uh, uh, not one of those lambs would be perfect. None of them would be. But Jesus would come and he would take on flesh as we have and he would live on this earth for 33 years and he would live a perfect sinless life so that at the end of that passage, when he goes to the cross, he is the perfect substitute. He is the sinless substitute and he can make the, the atonement for our sins, and he's the only one who can do that. He makes it possible for us to find forgiveness and redemption through the blood that he will shed there on that cross. This is the great purpose of Jesus' life, and his mind is on the cross from the beginning of this ministry. I just imagine here in Luke chapter 9, as Jesus turns here suddenly, and he looks down southward, I can just imagine in his divinity being able to look and to see, to see Jerusalem. And that from that point, in that moment, he is divinely fixed on traveling and going to Jerusalem and fulfilling the mission that God had given him for his life. So we see that now is the time for decision. Now is the time for decision. Before we do anything, we decide when we will do that thing. Before I do something, before I take the time, to, before I go and dive into it, I decide when I'm going to do that thing. Now, some of you men can relate to this. We decide to do something, and we decide when we're going to do it, and there's no point in nagging us six months later about, about doing it, okay? We've decided when we're going to do it. We know when we're going to do it. We just haven't told you yet. Amen, fellas? Hey, right on. <laughs> now, let's, get, let's put this in context just a minute. Jesus stays in Galilee for an extended ministry. He stays there for a great length of time before his final dealings with the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to get this, and I want you to hear this. Jesus could stay in Jerusalem and never be crucified. Jesus could have stayed in Galilee. I'm, I'm sorry. Jesus could stay in Galilee and never be crucified. Now, think about this. 
Jesus is extremely popular in Galilee. Jesus draws great crowds in Galilee. There are, there are a throng of people following him everywhere he goes. He is, very, he is extremely popular there. He is so popular that they want to take him and make him their king. At one point, they want to forcibly take him and make him their king. Now, what they're looking for, though, is a political messiah. They're looking for a messiah who is going to come and who's going to step up there in the region that he's in and say, I am the appointed messiah, and you are going to follow me, and we are going to get rid of the Roman government that is over us. We're going to take that heavy yoke off of us that they've placed on us i am that political messiah i am that king that you're searching for i am the one who has come but as we talked about wednesday evening when it became apparent to those to the people around him that he wasn't going to do that and he told them the hard truth of who he really was and and of what his mission really was the scriptures tell us there in john that many of those who were following him departed from him. Now, think about in our own human nature. What would most people do? What would most of the people do? If you were in a place where you were extremely popular and people loved you and people followed you, but you knew there was a place where you, were, you could go and people hated you and people wanted to murder you, in our human nature, which place would we want to stay? Where would we want to be? Well, I would want to be where they loved me. And I would, want to be, I would want to be kept there safe. And I would want to be where people adored me. I wouldn't want to go to the place where I'm, I'm hated and where I know that people are going to murder me. But that wasn't what Jesus' mission was. Jesus begins to teach. He takes great time to instruct the people of Galilee in the spiritual nature of God's kingdom and what is going to be accomplished. Jesus wisely stayed away from long stays in Jerusalem during this time that he was ministering in Galilee. He would go to the religious feast in Jerusalem and then he would come back because he knew that if he were killed prematurely, it would interfere with the plan that God the Father had put in place for him. Timing. Timing is very important in our lives. And Jesus had the exact time planned when he would leave Galilee and concentrate on Jerusalem. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into the world to be born of a virgin, to be born under the law. For what purpose? To die for our sins so that we could be adopted as sons. So Jesus knows that there is an appointed time. He knows when he is going. And so he sticks to the plan that God the Father has for him. Now, dedication. Dedication means complete surrender to a cause. Absolute, complete surrender to a cause. Now, here's what I want you to, to, to think about. Once Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, he never looked back. He never looked back. 
He knew that the appointed time had come, and he knew where he was headed, and he knew what his mission was. He knew what he had come to do, and once he set his face toward Jerusalem, he never looked back. In 1519, Hernando Cortez, the great Spanish conqueror and explorer, landed in Veracruz. And when he landed there, and when they had emptied the ships, and when they had gone ashore, you know what his first command was to the, to the men who were with him? He told them to go back and burn the ships. Go back and burn the ships. Now, if you're one of Cortez's men and he says to you, uh, go back and burn the ships, what, what's your thought? That's my safety net. That's my ride back home. And he wants me to burn it. And he wants me, he wants me to be stranded here. But Cortez was saying, once we hit this sand and once we, we're here to complete a mission and there is no turning back, there is no going back, and we're going to accomplish what we came for. Now, I want, I want you to think about this. Jesus provided himself no safety net. He left the place where it was safe for him to be, and he went to the place. He went to the place where he was going to be crucified. I want you to, I want you to get this statement in your, in your mind, and, and maybe you are trying to make a decision. Maybe you're trying to make a life-changing decision, and you're being held back. Think about this. Retreat is easy when you have the option. Retreat is easy when you have the option. When you give yourself a safety net, when you give yourself a way out, it's easy to turn around and go back. But Jesus took retreat out of the, out of the equation. He took all safety nets out of the equation, and he went to the place where he knew he was going to be murdered. He realized it meant his death, but we see in his decision the completed surrender of a spotless soul. Now, everything that had happened before Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 was under the influence of the cross. And throughout the rest of the gospel, we are reminded that the destiny of Jesus was Jerusalem, where he would confront the religious leaders, and there Jesus would be rejected and put on a cross. And guess what? Jesus accepted this divine mission from God the Father, and he did it voluntarily. No one had to coerce Jesus into doing it. The 12 men who were with him didn't have to encourage Jesus to say, Hey, Jesus, remember you told us that you're going to have to be delivered up and before men, and they're going to take you, and they're going to crucify you. Jesus, let, let's, get, let's get going now. We need to move a little faster. No, Jesus was actually out ahead of them, and he was way ahead of them, and they, they, he was kind of dragging them along. They had no idea what they were walking into, but Jesus did. Jesus knew the agony that he was about to face. He knew the, 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 the symbol of the cross. It was not just a symbol to him, but he understood the death that he was going to have to face. It wasn't a quick and easy death. It was the, most lo it was the longest and most torturous death that any person on the earth could face at that time. And not only that did he know that, but he knew that he was going to take the weight of the guilt and the sin of every person it, it, that would ever live in the world, he was going to take that on him. 
But the most anguishing thing to him was this. He knew that during that time that God the Father can't look upon sin, and he knew that while he was there on that cross filled with the sins of this world, that God the Father would have to turn and, not, and, and, and be away from him, and it would be the only moments in all of eternity where the Father and the Son would not be united together. And he knew the horror of that. That's the same horror that those who reject Jesus and those who reject the cross of Christ and those who reject this simple plan of salvation that he has for us, that is the same horror that they will face throughout all eternity. The Bible describes for us there, Luke goes on a little bit later, and Jesus gives a description of a place called hell. A man there, a, a, a rich man named Lazarus, who is separated from God. And what in Jesus in the story Jesus describes it this way that where he is there's a great chasm in between he and, and God the Father that no one can go through and no one can get through. And so the most agonizing aspect of hell is the hopelessness of knowing that we have no access to God anymore. That's the torment and the torture that Jesus was about to know for those moments there on the cross as he took our sins upon him, he knew the agony of not having access to the Father. And that was, that was as brutal to him as anything that he would face there on the cross. But he, did, he accepted it and he did it voluntarily. God the Father was in charge of his life, and he was completely surrendered to the Father's purpose for him. Jesus is not a helpless victim of circumstances. He made this choice, and he made it deliberately. He deliberately looked to Jerusalem, and he deliberately set his face there, and from that moment on, he was surrendered to the duty that he had before him. This dedication in the Old Testament, the definition of it is to cut off or to separate oneself for a special purpose. When we are dedicated to God, we are cut off from the rest of the world and separated completely to him. And we, we are separated because he wants us to live holy and he wants us to give unselfish service. You see, in the world we live in now, we, we, we believe in the, in the Western version of Christianity, we believe that we are saved to be happy. But God's Word tells us that we're saved to be what? We're saved to be holy. And in holiness is where we find our happiness. And in the unselfish service that we give. General Pershing was the commander of the American troops. And he went to General Foch, who was the commander of the Allied forces in World War I. And when the United States decided to go into World War I and join the battle, General Pershing went to the general over the Allied forces, and he said this. He said, our men, our equipment, our supplies are yours to use as you wish. He said, everything that we have is yours, and I give it to you to do how you want to do it. Now, think about this. What a change it would be if we could see every Christian surrender to God completely and say this, my time, my talents, my money, my enthusiasm, all that I have is yours to be used completely 
in your service. Everything I have is yours to be used how you want to use it, God. See, Jesus came to this earth. He was a great teacher. He had great wisdom. He was a great miracle worker. And he could, he could have been here a, a long life and done those things. But he knew that his mission was to have his life cut short in the prime of his life and to surrender his life for hours. I read this quote from John Piper that says this, The greatest person made the greatest sacrifice for the greatest gift to the least deserving. The greatest person made the greatest sacrifice for the greatest gift to the least deserving. How dedicated are we to Jesus? How dedicated are we to the mission that God has given us? How often do we even pray and ask God, what is my mission here on this earth? What, it is, what is it, God, that you've placed me here to do? Well, I'll tell you this, go to the last page of Matthew, and, and, and he plainly tells us what our mission is. In Matthew chapter 28, in those last verses there, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He makes it very simple to us. We are to make disciples. That is our mission individually. That's the mission of our church. That's the mission of the great church of Jesus that, that exists in this world today. Everyone who has been made a disciple is in turn told by Jesus to go and to make other disciples. That's our mission. He may put us in the school system to do that. He may make us a teacher or an administrator, or he may put us in a hospital somewhere as a nurse or a physician. He may put us in a factory somewhere working. He may put us in, in a sales field or somewhere, but no matter where he puts us, we have one mission greater than the mission that we are to accomplish for whoever is our employer. Our mission is to be about making disciples. When is the last time that you prayed and said, Lord, make me a disciple maker? Not, Lord, help me to get through this, take this burden off of me to change my circumstances, but God, put me where you want me to be so that I have the opportunity to make disciples. That is our mission. Jesus knew his mission. His mission was to make a disciple out of us for us to go and make disciples out of others. And that is what we should be praying for. That is what we should be longing for. That is what we should be thirsty about in this life, is to make disciples, individually, corporately, and as the church as a whole, those who have been won to Christ through surrendering our lives for the forgiveness of our sins and what he accomplished for us at the cross. This morning, my invitation is simple. My invitation is this. Are you dedicated to what Jesus has called you to do? Have you prayed and asked, where is it that you want me to, to do this? Where is it that you want me to serve? How is it that you want me to serve? What 
is it that I have that I have not surrendered to you that I need to surrender? That's my invitation this morning. My invitation this morning, no, normally my invitation first is to the lost. But my invitation this morning is to those of us who say we are followers of Jesus, to say that we've been saved of our sins. My invitation is to us first this morning, is to say, what are we doing to make disciples? How are we going about our lives? We talked this morning in Sunday school, we began our discussion in Sunday school this morning with how busy the world is and all the things that crush in on us and all the things that we do and all the places that we go and all of the responsibilities that we give ourselves and that consume all of our time. Maybe we need to begin by saying, God, let me give me a look at all the things that I'm doing. What is it I need to give up that's causing me not to serve the way that I should and not to be the, the disciple that I need to be? Maybe we need to look at, at, at our calendar. Maybe we need to look at, at what we're doing and say, Lord, these are things, these are, these, these are things I, can, I can give up to be more of what you want me to do. Well, Michael, that's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. I want to tell you this. The world is going to hell. The world is going to hell. And you know what? You know, what, you know the biggest reason why they're going to hell? The biggest reason they're going to hell is not the political situation in America. The biggest reason they're not going to hell, the, reason, the biggest reason they're going to hell is not Hollywood or the media. The biggest reason they're going to hell is, 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 not, uh, is, is not all the things that the world, the biggest reason they're going to hell is because we're sitting here and we're comfortable. That's the biggest reason the world is going to hell. Well, if we elect a more conservative president, things will change and things will get better. Or, or if we elect better governors, or if we elect better, let, let, keep on thinking that. Keep on playing that game. Because it's not going to get any better through that. The only way the world is going to get any better, the, the only world that we're going to reach the world is when we decide to give up the comfort of our pew and go and reach the world. And I'm going to tell you this, you don't have to get on an airplane and fly to a South American country or to Central America. Your neighbors are going to hell. Your family members are going to hell. People that you work with and know and love and see every day are going to hell. Make yourself uncomfortable and reach people that you have the opportunity to reach. You don't get to a certain age as a believer and say, well, I've done all that I need to do. I'm going to retire now, and I'm, going, I'm, going to, I'm just going to, you know, just going to coast on to heaven. There is no retirement on this earth from the responsibilities that Jesus gives us. Some of you have taught me that. Some of you have shown me that. Just because you reach a certain market life, you, you don't just sit down and stop. Because this life is brief. It's like a mist. It's here and gone. And my invitation this morning is, is for us to become uncomfortable and for us to begin to look at, the, at our lives and say, why is it that we're so busy? I, I've always heard it say, say, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you what? He'll make you busy. And busyness will keep you from the Bible. Busyness will keep you from prayer. And busyness will certainly, if it's keeping you from those things, it will certainly keep you from making disciples.
So this morning, my invitation is to you as a believer to examine your heart and your life this morning because I had to examine my heart and my life when I read it. And so we all have to. What is it? What turning point decision do you need to make as a believer here this morning to be better at making disciples? Father, I take this time this morning, dear God, and I give it to you. My job is complete. Your Holy Spirit, Father, the Holy Spirit of God now will reap what is his. And Father, I pray this morning that our hearts would be attentive, that our minds would be focused, and that we would look to Jesus. We would look to Jesus and his example of dedication to, 